Black parents, we don't have the luxury of avoiding race and racism. We're going to experience that from day one, literally. Hello and welcome to Mother Mother, a new podcast from the mom friends you need right now. Because this shit is hard. While Mother Mother is technically a parenting podcast, this is not a podcast about kids. It's a podcast all about the experience of being a mother, which in some ways is universal, but is really very different for all of us. I'm your host, Emily Ferris, a writer and married mom of two in Kansas City, Missouri, not Kansas, where I'm recording this intro from my new shed. For the past few weeks, I've been converting a shed into an office, and I just moved in last night. Which reminds me, I forgot to tell this week's guest before we recorded that my now former office was basically a storage unit when we talked, and that I usually don't do video calls in front of piles of shit, but whatever. Um, If you want to see my new space, which does not look like the she sheds you see on Pinterest, and I refuse to even call it a she shed, I'll share pictures in the Mother Mother podcast Facebook group where the password is tired. And you can always find more information on the show and my guests at mothermotherpodcast.com, where you can also leave me a voicemail. Anyway, back to my conversation this week. There are some hard truths in here, and there were a few times I cried when I was editing it. I laughed too, and that's what I love about this podcast. It really is like a conversation with a mom friend. It is. But in all seriousness, my conversation with Kelly Glass is important, and I hope you'll listen all the way to the end, especially if you, like me, are a white mom. Okay, well, now that I've made it all heavy and shit, I guess we should just get into it already. My guest today is Kelly Glass, the executive editor of Black Parenting at Parents.com. And I am so excited to have you here today, Kelly, because I feel like we're friends and we know each other from the internet, from Facebook, but this is the first time we're seeing each other face to face. And I am so happy to have you here and see your beautiful face. I feel the same. Internet friends are my favorite. So thank you for having me, Emily. Thank you so much for being here. So you are based in Chicago. So we're both Midwesterners and you are a single mom. You have you have two sons. How old are your sons? So I have a soon to be six-year-old and a 17-year-old. So we are spanning the the ages here. Yeah, that that is quite a spread. Uh, I know you're not really supposed to ask questions like this, but was that on purpose? Yes and no. So I was a teen mom. Fun fact. Um, I was a freshman in college when I had my oldest son. So was that on purpose? No, that was not. But my five-year-old, he was very much on purpose. I have an almost six-year-old as well. So if we were if we were in the same Midwestern city, they could be friends. Where are you? I'm in Kansas City, Missouri, not Kansas as I used to say in the intro. Perfect. Missouri, not Kansas. Yes. Um, I spent a decade in New York and then moved back to Kansas City. I'm from outside of Kansas City and moved back in 2009 and then met my husband about a year after that. Interesting. Good old Kansas City. You are a single mom, but you have not been a single mom for long, correct? You're going through a divorce? That is correct. So I, I, of course, I was a single mom when I had my oldest son, but recently I've been going through The longest divorce in the history of divorces, I think. Um, People would disagree, but yeah. Uh, Was lockdown the catalyst for your divorce? (laughs) It wasn't. In fact, I think lockdown is the reason why it's taking so long. I think we both just kind of got like 
whatever. <laughs> oh, well, it'll happen. Um, but no, it was it was sort of in process for years. And I think a lot of people can relate to this when, you know, a marriage is ending. You go through kind of like a few different separations before you get to the place where you're like, OK, this is this is really ending. Let's do this. And so I think that happened actually over lockdown where I got to that place. So I think that would probably make it easier, too, because when you like taking someone out of your life is a, is a shock to the whole system. But then probably by the time you've gone through a few different separations and false restarts, you're like, just get out of my life already. <laughs> exactly. I think that's when you know, uh, you know, I'm doing okay, you know, without this yeah. person. I think it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you have a good co-parenting relationship with your soon-to-be ex-husband? Oh, absolutely. Um I could not be more thankful for that because at the end of the day, of course, it's about um, it's about the kids. You know, you have to do what's best for the kids. And I know a lot of people kind of like have to grin and bear certain situations for the kids. And I'm just so thankful we don't have to worry about that. I think we're both just kind of like drama free people. So this has been fairly easy. We just we just parent go in our parenting corners and we do what we got to do. Now, were you already living separately when lockdown happened? Yes. Does that mean you got to send your kids to his house sometimes while you were in lockdown? That's what it means. Yeah. <laughs> <gasps> wow. That's what it means. One I of, mean, I don't want to say the... I'm jealous of divorce, but like <laughs> that would have been nice. I, I think it's like one of the lesser talked about perks <laughs> of divorce and co-parenting is that as a mom, you finally get a break if you're lucky. Yeah. My friend Amy recently had a piece in Modern Love and she was going through a divorce before the COVID lockdown. I listened to her, an interview she did on a podcast after her Modern Love piece. And she talked about how she had, she felt like she had so much time to write because her kids were going to her ex's apartment like half the time or every other weekend or something. And I was, I found myself, I've never been like, mm, divorce sounds very, I love my <laughs> husband. I'm not trying to get a divorce, but the idea that I would have been able to hand my kids off to anyone during that time and just had t mental time and space to write would have been yeah. amazing. Yeah. One of the perks, I would encourage married people to just kind of do that anyway, like pretend they're co-parenting for like, a weekend out of, you know, the month or something and just, okay, you have the kids this weekend. Bye. Why I not? like that. That's a good idea. <laughs> our, our work schedules right now make it kind of tricky because I work during the week and my husband is working on the weekends. And so uh, it's a bit of a handoff situation, but that does, that would be nice. Like, okay, I'm going to go to a hotel. I'm going to go stay in a hotel for one weekend a month and you go stay in a hotel for one weekend a month. You should do it. I actually just found out today when someone tagged me in a picture that today is my wedding anniversary. <laughs> Oops. Oh, you just found out? <laughs> well, I uh, we got married the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So Kelly and I are recording this interview um, a, li a little bit before it airs, obviously. And um, so our wedding anniversary is technically November 24th, but we celebrate it the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So I had to laugh when someone tagged me and said, happy wedding anniversary. I was like, oh, shit, we forgot. It's our wedding anniversary. Oops. <laughs> So what was your lockdown like? So obviously you had some time and space because you were able to send your kids off to be with your ex part of the time. What was the rest of it like? I did. I had some time and space. Um, I also, so I was, for most of the lockdown, I was still, um, I was an independent journalist. So before I was with parents, I was, um, you know, just doing my own thing, running a business, if you will, and deciding my schedule, deciding what pieces I wanted to take. So. In that sense, I was, I feel very lucky 
uh, privileged, if you will, which is, you know, difficult for me to say as a black woman, but there it is, um, that I had that kind of life during this, you know, this whole mess. So I really felt like I could be there with my kids and for my kids. Um, and also like kind of take care of myself a little bit because I could say no, you know, if there was something I didn't want to do, I could say no, I didn't have to do everything. Um, and that was actually what made lockdown so kind of easy. I hate to say it, it was kind of easy for me in that sense, but in another very real sense, um, it was heavy. Like we were dealing with some heavy things. You know, I have two black sons. So of course this, you know, the pandemic coincided with this racial unrest that my 17 year old, you know, throughout this whole thing, he's been super aware of. He's old enough to, to, to watch and to hear and to see about these things and really to, to see people who look like him being killed, being, you know, slaughtered in the streets. Um, and so me being there for them wasn't just, you know, a function of cool. We get to spend all this amazing, you know, unstructured family time together, but it was really important for me to be there to take care of him and to kind of shield him from some of this, if you will, you know, as much as you can as, as a black parent to, to black sons, because it's, it's nearly impossible for us, even if we wanted to, to avoid race and racism. Yeah. I mean, that was so hard to watch just as a parent of any child. Like it's kind of fucked up that it took the, the moment of George Floyd, like crying out for his mom, for people to feel sympathy. It shouldn't have had to get to that yeah. as just a mom. That was so hard to watch. And I can't even imagine how it must have felt as a black mom and a mother of black sons watching that. And you mentioned you know, trying to shield your son and take care of him, but you are a person who has to be online and and you work in media. Your job requires you to be on social media, to be in media, to pay attention to what's going on in the media. And we are in some of the same or were in some of the same Facebook groups and writer groups. And I would see I I would see you going on and telling people like, you know, black parents, black people, take care of yourselves right now. How did you take care of yourself through all of that? I am, I'm one of those people, I don't always follow my own advice. I, so again, I was, I was in the middle of this, like as a, as a person, as a mom, but also as a journalist, like I was covering the protest, um, you know, I was covering, you know, the trials and, and just kind of like knee deep in it, in my work. So mentally, no, I could not escape it. Um, what I, what I did do though, it actually made me feel, and this was very almost intentional on my part. It made me feel like I was doing my part because for, you know, for some reason, I felt like if I wasn't the journalist to cover these things, who would be like, who would be covering these things in a way that really honored and respected, um, you know, black communities and what we're going through? Um, you know, some of the some of the coverage around this stuff was very insensitive, um, you know, dehumanizing the images that were being shared. You know, so I felt like this responsibility and, you know, I'm the kind of person who like, if I feel like I am a part of something, even though I know that I cannot single-handedly change a culture um, in journalism, it did give me a sense of peace to know that I was at least contributing to the change. Did you feel compelled to do more parenting writing or more coverage of uh, black families or anything like that, even as a as a freelancer at the time. 
Yeah. So I had, I had been covering race, racism, um, racial disparities. I had been covering how those things intersect with parenting, you know, since I started writing really. So this was just kind of like the moment where people were paying attention to it. So yes, I did a lot more, um, you know, I did a lot more pieces, uh, kind of covering that intersection of parenting and race and racism and the racial unrest, you know, the mental health of black children. I had sort of already, you know, built that niche for myself. Um, So it was just an opportunity to do more of that. And what you saw happening a lot was, you know, editors kind of seeking out these stories, which hadn't been happening. So on, on that front, it was a lot easier for me, right? Like I didn't have to like beg for a space in somebody's publication. People were looking for it. So yeah, I, I fully took, I embraced that opportunity. Um, of course, at the same time, there was like this bitterness. And I think all Black journalists, you know, during the last few years can, you know, probably relate to this. Is why did it take so long? Like, why did it take so long for Black journalists to be valued and for them to want our stories and be seeking our stories? Or even just to see the importance of us covering things that are not necessarily about race, because you can look at some of it and say, you know, there's two parts, right? There's the part where you need Black journalists to tell Black stories. And there's the other part where if you have more Black journalists just covering journalism altogether, some of the problems that we're having, you know, maybe we wouldn't be having. Like if if things were representative of the Black community and more balanced, maybe we wouldn't be here, you know, to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about shielding your older son from some of what was happening in the summer of 2020. How did you handle it with your younger son? So he's the same age as my son. And I know we had, I've, I've had a Black Lives Matter sticker on my car since like 2013 or 14, but like we put up bigger signs, we painted signs, we put them up, we talked about race, but I mean, it's a very different experience than what, what you probably had with your son. It is. Um, and I think, you know, my, both of my children have known that they are black from the time that they could talk. So the conversations with them look a little bit different and it's not, it's not so much like a sit down as it is like and every day, you know, this is our life. This is what's happening. And so I saw my five-year-old seeing what his his brother was experiencing. And I feel like he learned through that. Of course, we stopped and we had conversations as things happened. Um, but with my 17-year-old, he, if I'm not on TikTok, but if, if, if you're on TikTok, you know that TikTok was like, that for teenagers, that's like the New York Times. That's where they get their news, right? Yeah. So he's getting all of this information and getting these messages and he's asking me questions. And I realize it's all filtered through this, like this TikTok lens of what happened. So with him, I had to be super intentional, right? Like having these conversations, almost debunking what he was hearing and seeing on TikTok. But with the five-year-old, it was more so just kind of like guiding his feelings, you know, He even just recently, he's become much, much, much more aware of race. So race and racism, two different concepts, right? Like racism is based on this construct of of race, but you can experience racism before you understand the nuance of race, which is what I was dealing with with my five-year-old, right? Like he's experienced racism. He's seen racism. 
And now he's, uh, you know, recently he's in kindergarten. He just started kindergarten this year. So he's having like his his first like conversations about race and noticing kids, different skin tones and how they're being treated different. The racism part, right? But he's really, really, really noticing, you know, race. And he talks about himself in ways that, you know, concern me. And I have to sometimes, you know, talk him through that. For example, um, he he's always historically not liked to take pictures. But recently it's turned into like, he he will get upset, like super upset if I try to take a picture. And so I just kind of asked him about it. And he said, you know, it's, I don't like the way I look um, in pictures. So we talk through that. Why don't you like the way you look in pictures? You know, my skin is brown. My skin is browner than yours. You know, okay, what's wrong with that? Your skin is beautiful. You know, so we're having these conversations about race with a five-year-old who is already associating his race with, um, you know, negativity and it doesn't look good to him. And he didn't form that on his own. He got that from the society he lives in, you know, but he's five, but he's still a part of, he's still a part of all of this. Right. So with the five-year-old, it's been more of a challenge, I think, just because he's at a crucial time in his development where I have to guide him in these areas. And the 17-year-old, he already thinks he knows everything. And I just kind of have to do the <laughs> the debunking. Yeah, yeah. But neither one of them are easy, you know. I can't even imagine how exhausted you must have been. Like, I know, like, luckily you got the break of being able to send your kids to your ex, but I was just so tired and overwhelmed and exhausted all the time. And yeah. I'm sure part of that had to do with the fact that I had a, my second baby three weeks before lockdown. Oh, wow. But just existing in this state of anxiety with the virus and nobody knew anything and then everyone's stressed out and everyone's locked at home and everything's horrible and people are losing their jobs and just watching this unfold. It was all so exhausting and so overwhelming. And then you have the added layer of like having to live it and explain it to your children. I assume there was probably a sense of like, it's about damn time that what's happening is happening, but also like it shouldn't have taken this long. It should not have. We shouldn't be here. Exactly. We shouldn't be here. So did you ever just lose your shit or like melt down or, or just like sleep for days? No. (laughs) Like, how did you, how did you deal? I know you'd say you dealt by like kind of encouraging other people to take care of themselves and taking care of your kids. But like, how did you, how did, as a mother, as a woman, like, how did you deal? Good question. You know, as much as the strong black woman myth is harmful, I think a lot of us still hold on to that. Like, even if we don't like subconsciously on this very subconscious level, I, I don't feel like I have the luxury of breaking down. I feel like I have to keep going for, um, you know, for my kids, for society, for the state of journalism. There's um, there. I, I feel a lot of burden on my shoulders, but it's they are burdens that I welcome. So I never I never necessarily broke down. Um, I do take care of myself in a way where I. I know when to take a break. So again, like when I was uh, independent, if there was something that I knew, I I cannot cover that. I like I cannot mentally, emotionally cover that and be okay. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cover it. I'm not gonna report it. I'm not gonna write about it. Um, that is that is probably the best way I could have taken care of myself. Right is by being super intentional about where I was putting my energy professionally, but also emotionally, because a lot of these things, again, a lot of these topics, 
something editors probably um, could be more aware of, right, is that when you're assigning things to black journalists, especially when they're, you know, dealing with racial trauma, it's not just the work. It's the the unpaid emotional labor <laughs> of it. And I had to make very conscious decisions about what labor I was not going to take on. Yeah. So I know you're in this parenting writing space now, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but I know you did some parenting writing before you moved over to parents. What would you say is your, or was your biggest challenge as a black woman in the kind of parenting journalism space before moving to parents? My biggest challenge has been the parenting space is is overwhelmingly white. Only white people have kids, Kelly. Only white people have kids and families. And that is that is the message that we get. And when, you know, even when there are black stories in these spaces, they're often written for the white gaze. So they are serving white people, right? So one of my biggest challenges was doing the work trying to get editors and publications on board with um, not whitewashing the work, speaking with and not just to or at or about Black people and Black families. Um, And just by virtue of how journalism is and, you know, digital media overall. The idea that something is for everyone. So if you go to, you know, any major publication, to them, their audience is everyone. But what that really means is that it's for white people, right? Like, so trying to change minds about this idea that something that's for everyone doesn't just mean white people. It should really mean everyone, right? So that was my biggest challenge. Um, you know, I had, I, I, I killed a lot of pieces because, you know, we couldn't come to that agreement. And I had probably one or two pieces pulled because I refused to whitewash them. So that was that was my biggest challenge. And I, w- I won't say that that's not still a challenge. That's definitely still a challenge. Could you, in, in broad terms, like share the hot goss on what you mean by an editor trying to whitewash a parenting story? Um, that's, you don't have to name any names or publications. I'm just curious, like um, what an, what an editor might do to a parenting story that would that would whitewash it. Yes. Yeah, so, for example, I won't say. I think if I say certain things, it'll give away too much. But mm. um, for example, if I was writing a story that was about families, Black families, and the generational trauma, right, that Black families can carry, and this was especially um, pertinent during the, you know, the summer of 2020, because we were almost re-traumatized, right? Like during that summer, Black families were. So if yeah. we talk about the accumulation of it, that's very, that's very important. Um, at the root of that, right, is systemic racism, institutional racism. A, uh, in writing that story, I, you know, like any good reporter would do, I talk about the, the context behind generational trauma. And like I said, that goes back to systemic racism. Um, a, an attempted whitewashing of that story looked like Well, you know, maybe if, are you sure this is where this comes from? Maybe if Black parents wouldn't talk about race that much or wouldn't talk about racism that much, you know, maybe they could stop passing on the trauma. What? Um, That's a very specific example that actually happened. Um, 
but I pull up that piece so hard. You know, you're going to have to tell me offline who that was. I'm going <laughs> to, I have you to. You got it. You got it. I think you'll be very interested. Yes, I will be. Um, that will not go in the show notes, listeners. I will not put that in the show notes. Um, Kelly, I want to talk all about your new job because I'm very excited to hear about it. And we're going to take a quick break. But before we go, I do have one very important question for you. What are you wearing? Ooh, like face or body? <laughs> well, you know, I actually do want to talk to you about your face because you are so into skincare and I love it. Um, so give me, yeah, start with your face and then work your way down. Okay. So let's, let's do, let's do face. So, um, I do, I do a two, I do a double wash, um, a double cleanse as a lot of people who follow like a Korean skincare routine will be familiar with. Um, I also do Lani Edge's two in one, uh, toner. So it's like a moisturizer and a toner. And then I put sunscreen on top and I will say sunscreen again because sunscreen is very important and black people, please wear your sunscreen. We do need it. Sorry. That's a myth. Um, everybody needs sunscreen. Everybody does. Um, you know, even us more melanated folks, we need sunscreen. Um, and I am, I actually, so I'm always doing eye cream and I switched to Sunday Riley's autocorrect recently and I, I love it. I'm obsessed with it. I bought it in a fluke. Is that the one with caffeine in it? It's yeah. It has something yeah. like that in it. So mm-hmm. I usually use glam goes under eye and I think theirs has caffeine in it too, but they were out of that. So I got this and I love it. Um, and then everything else is just glossier. So a glossier lip, um, glossier skin tint, glossier eyebrows and mascara. I love it. You look beautiful, radiant. Okay. So kind of the point of this, what are you wearing question is to find out like, are you wearing sweatpants? Are you wearing a bra? So tell me what, what's, what do you have on bottom? Oh, so I am wearing yoga pants. So very close to sweatpants and I am wearing a bra, but it's a sleeping bra. So it like half doesn't count. (laughs) Is it meant for, is it really technically a sleeping bra? It's a bra to sleep in? It's, it's technically a sleeping bra. Um, Do you, so you must need, you must need a bra to sleep in. I do need a bra to sleep in. That's a world I'm not familiar with. Sadly, I have, (laughs) I have talked a lot on this show about how I cannot find a bra for my, my poor, sad little post breastfeeding boobs, but I love that you're in yoga pants. I, uh, very few of the moms so far have been in real pants. I feel like it, it, it's very relatable that we're all like, you look, you look very put together on top, but I'm very happy that you're in yoga pants. And a sleeping bra. I'm always in yoga pants. It's one of the beautiful things COVID gave us is that we all get to work from home in yoga pants now. Absolutely. So thanks, COVID. Thank you. Why not? All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I'm hungry. I'm dirty. I'm losing my mind. All right. We are back. My guest is Kelly Glass, the executive editor of Black Parenting at Parents.com. You have an exciting new job there, Kelly, because you were hired to launch a new vertical specifically for about Black parenting? Correct. We can't name it yet. That's correct. Not yet. That's coming soon. Okay. So it's launching in January. Yep. Mid-January. Is there going to be a big party? Is there going to be a party or are we not doing parties yet? That's a great question. And that's actually something we're still trying to figure out. Um, I'll keep you posted. I would I would love a party. Well, I don't want to like crash the party if it's not a space for me though. I'm, I'm in the parenting space, but like, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to like crash a black parenting party if, if I don't really. I feel you. I saw you posting um, a job post the other day uh, for this vertical. And I, I wondered like how many white moms have applied to that position? <laughs> 
probably a number that I have not seen yet, but I mm. am never surprised. We talked earlier about how mainstream media and mainstream parenting content is kind of whitewashed for the white gaze. Is this new vertical? I know it's about, it'll be about Black parents and featuring Black parents. Is it for Black parents? Is this like specifically media created for Black parents? It is. So it is for us by us. Most importantly, it's really going to center us and our experiences. Now, can can non-Black people read it? Absolutely. And in fact, I would encourage that because that's what Black people people have been doing. We have to glean whatever we can from, you know, these these stories that are not written with us in mind. And I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be mad at the tables turning. And I also think that could be super beneficial to the kinds of conversations we're having with each other and in the parenting space overall. Yeah. I feel like so many white parents, just white people in general, are afraid to say black. They'll be like, they'll say they'll be like she was black, the black person. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> yeah. Or BIPOC. Why are you whispering? What's that? Or BIPOC. Oh. Just the new one. You know, I have never, okay. That's one of those interesting terms that I see online all the time in chatter. And I always say by POC. So I, it's funny how we all like, I don't say out loud. Uh, when you don't hear something out loud, you <laughs> say it's pronounced differently in your head. I was recently listening to an audiobook because that's all I can do now is audiobooks. And the author read the book and sh- I say, like, I'm a cis white woman. She kept pronouncing it cis, cis. And I was like, I, it's been cis in my head for the last decade. How do you pronounce it? I definitely go cis. I'm with you. Cis. I'm with you. Cis, but it's BIPOC, not by POC. Yeah. Yes. And for people who don't know, by POC is. Ah, so depending on who you ask. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So I'm going to say black yeah. indigenous people of color. But. Or. Who, what else would. <laughs> so, yes, black indigenous people people of color, black, indigenous, and people of color. <laughs> and the, so the commas and the ands make all the difference. And I just don't use the term anymore because I think the term is a mess. And I think nobody, there's no meeting of the minds as to what it means and how to use it. So it was originally meant to center black and indigenous people. Um, it's a very US-centered term. And it was meant to center us because of our kind of our very similar historical, um, you know, types of oppression that we experience in this country, you know, in relation to other people of color. So it was meant to center our experiences and it has almost become an erasure of them. <laughs> so I don't use it. Oh, because it's just like lumping yep. non-white people together. That's how it's been used. Exactly. I um, I feel like I... I'm going to show my age here. Um, and I recently got called an elder millennial. I'm technically a zennial or a geriatric millennial. Um, I do feel like sometimes as as soon as words start to catch on, like they become problematic. And then I'm like, oh, shit, I'm so behind. And I'll, yep. I was in a group and I used women with an X. And then I was told how problematic that was. And I was like, oh, fuck, like I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't, like I thought I was, I thought I was using the right term. And I, there needs to be a glossary that is kept up to date by the most in the know people. So the rest of us don't act like almost 40-year-old white women and say it wrong. <laughs> I agree. It, just not Urban Dictionary. But you know, the good thing about that is when you're when you're corrected, and I even get corrected in, in spaces online, it's just like a good opportunity to look stuff up and be like, okay, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I, I understand that now, as opposed to being like, well, 
forget you. I tried. Yeah. <laughs> Just what a lot of people do. I mean, like, oh, shit, I'm sorry. Now I know. Exactly. But, you know, then there are the people who will dig in their heels and cause so much drama in some, uh, uh, we won't go there, but some Facebook groups that you are no longer in. <laughs> you mean the ones specifically for writers, maybe? Yeah. 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 It happens. We won't go there again. It does happen. Not going to put that in the show notes. Um, okay, so back to your new exciting job um, at parents.com. So this vertical, is this is going to be an online-only publication, correct? Digital, fully digital, or is this is there going to be a print component? There is going to be a print component. Um, and yes, so fully digital for now. That's where that's where investing all of our energy and our you know time. And I love digital, so I'm not mad at it. Now, is the print component going to be within the parents magazine or will it be separate within parents magazine okay all right yep. i'm excited to see it now obviously like parents who are not black parents white parents can benefit from reading this vertical and absolutely should i wish we could say the name because i could be like bookmark it but if you go to parents.com right now you already have content in this vein exactly and you're doing a lot of interviews yes with famous people. I am. And famous people are interesting. Um, no, it's been fun. The, the So I will say that the vibe of this new Black parenting vertical, um, it does not center celebrities. I want to make that clear. It's not, it's, it's a little bit less lifestyle and it's a little, it's more culture, okay. right? So original porting and features and, you know, really solutions-based journalism. But the celebrities, they have they have things to say about parenting that sometimes I think well, somebody somebody can relate to it. Somebody is interested by it. And so, you know, we don't turn down a really cool celebrity who has something important to say about Black parenting. And one thing I've kind of noticed with what you've been putting out so far in mainstream parenting media, it seems like if there is a story about Black parenting, it's like about the fact that this family or this parent or this child is black. And I feel like with the content you're putting out, even though this hasn't officially launched yet, it's like black parents just get to be parents and talk about issues in parenting that um, like you don't always have to focus on race. Yeah, that's what happens when you center black families and our experiences um, as opposed to constantly othering them just for the sake of saying we wrote about black families. Um, and that's what happens when you decenter the white gaze. And yeah, I do hope that white parents and non-black parents in general, I do hope they read what we're doing. And I think that will be part of normalizing the idea that a family doesn't just look like one thing. Um, and even within the content that we're doing, and I hope that, you know, once we launch and once we build up content, people will be able to see that. We're also kind of bucking against this idea that a family looks like one thing, that parents look like one thing. Like we're speaking to parents of all genders, people across kind of like this, you know, the, the saying is the African par proverb about it takes a village. And in a lot of ways, Black families really do still operate that way. And we really are going to be including those people into the fold. So I don't know if you saw my Yvonne Orji interview from She Plays Molly on Insecure. She talks about being an auntie, right? Because Black aunties are so important to the Black family structure and to Black kids. Um, and just the idea that all of these different 
people and Black families who are important and part of the village, they, they will have a space as well. Like their stories will be included. And the celebrity coverage is fun, right? Yeah, it's fun. I'm not going to lie. It's <laughs> it's fun. Um, and it's it's pretty cool to say, you know, I talked with Jamie Foxx, you know, like no big deal. I talked to this the celebrity. I talked to Kelly Rowland. I mean, that kind of stuff is fun, no doubt. Um, yeah. Is it a lot of like crazy red tape to get to these interviews? Like you have to like, the, does their PR person come on the Zoom? And they're like, okay, they're coming in in three minutes and you're going to have seven minutes to do your interview and then it's over. You've done this before. That's exactly what it's like. <laughs> That's literally what it's like. But the, so the lead up to it, it's always pretty easy because they, they usually, they have a story to tell and they're eager to have someone to tell it. And I like to believe that even for, for celebrities who have been doing all these interviews, probably, you know, like for years and years and years, um, doing all these press and these junkets, I like to think that I see a little bit of sparkle in their eye when they see a black journalist interviewing them. Yeah. You know, because honestly, there's just not, especially they're interviewing specifically in the parenting space. There's just not that many of us being represented. There's not that many of us who have those opportunities. So that's probably the most fun part for me. So beyond the some lifestyle and the celebrity stuff, what are your goals? What kind of content are you hoping to publish? Yeah. So again, original reporting is going to be a huge component of what we're doing. I want to make this feel like a premium place for people in Black families, for Black parents, um, for people in that village to come and find this this news and this reporting that centers them. Um, there's also going to be, you know, of course, that daily news component where, you know, whatever news is out there, such and such publication has presented it. But here's why it's relevant for us. You know, this is why it's relevant for Black people. Um, this is that missing context that was not in what the other publication was doing, but also really like a celebration of Blackness, right? Like we see, and I think you talked about this before, right? Like we see so much of this, of Black families, Black people being covered in a way where, you know, oh, it's bad news. Oh, it's traumatic. Oh, you know, this terrible thing has happened. And that is absolutely necessary. And this new vertical will not shy away from being authentic and being real about that. But there are so many Black people already out in our communities with solutions that are not being covered. So many of us who are already working hard toward making things better for the next generation, for our children that are not being featured. Right. So in that way, it's going to be really a celebration of Black families and people who are doing, you know, making an impact, making things better for the next generation. And I hope that's the main difference. You know, there are other Black lifestyle, you know, media publications out there. This is not going to be that. And I just hope, you know, when people see it, they They'll get it. Well, I'm very excited to see it. I am just based on what you're putting out already. I'm very excited to see it. Thank you. And um, I will be one of those white moms reading this, reading this content regularly. Obviously, this is a new and exciting publication, and it kind of seems like the perfect job for you. But what made you decide to leave freelancing, which is very flexible, and you get to say no to things you don't want to do and do whatever you want, and go take a full time job working for a publisher? You know, I've been a writer. I've been a journalist for you know, some years, but I've also been an editor for years. That's been mostly like on a contract basis. And 
one of those um, one of those gigs was with parents, parents.com. So I did have a longstanding relationship with parents. Um, you know, I had done American Birth Story, which was a spotlight package talking about the maternal mortality crisis and how it really impacted Black and Indigenous birthing people the most. And I'd also done anti-racist curriculum, which was, you know, what it sounds like. <laughs> and I enjoyed those experiences, but I also feel like they they left a mark. I feel like they kind of carved a path for people to see that this kind of thing was necessary. Um, you know, and at parents, it was necessary. So because of those experiences I had and because, you know, parents.com under such great leadership, I would not, and you've already said it, like when you're independent, you can take whatever gig you want and turn down whatever you want and you have all this flexibility. It has to be like the right thing. It has to be like the dream job to make you give that up. And this was that for me. And because I really trust the leadership there, I knew that I could do the work that I needed to do there, right? And that it could be impactful and that I could be, you know, wide reaching. So it was really like, it was just a matter of the the right timing, good leadership, and just something in line with my purpose, yeah. you know? So it was, it felt right. And as someone who recently decided to leave freelancing, accepting a full-time job, sweet benefits too. Yeah. Health benefits are good. Yeah. We like yeah. those. Well, this job does seem like a perfect job for you. I actually wondered when when I saw that you were launching this, if you if this was created with you in mind. Do you know if they created this this vertical with you in mind as the as the editor? You know, I don't think so, but I also don't know. I'm gonna start um, that rumor. Parents.com started <laughs> this vertical with Kelly in mind as the editor. I think you've started it. Yes. <laughs> it started. Yes. I love it. Um <laughs> Done. I know that black women especially have to do a lot of work educating white women especially but non-black people. However, I'm going to ask you to educate us a little bit more. Any media consumption advice for moms who mean well but are still getting most of their content from white-run mainstream media other than of course than looking at your new vertical. Yeah, it's kind of hard out there right now, right? Like what's out there is what's out there. So, in recognizing that most digital media, especially in the parenting space, is going to be centering white people. I would just encourage white parents, especially, to to question what they're reading, right? And if that means, and of course, you know, I'm also an elder millennial, so I'm still very much on Facebook. <laughs> so um, if that means like posting it on Facebook and engaging in conversations with what you've posted, putting aside any fragility about what you think, um, you know, should be the takeaway and listening to black people, listening to other people of color. That's, I mean, that's as educational as you can get without having to pay somebody like those opportunities, take them and don't ask for them. Right. But take them because your you know your media habits are going to be your media habits and it's limited what's out there right now of course our new vertical is hoping to change that for the parenting space but whatever you are engaging with as far as media make sure that you 
find a space, find a way to engage with that through a non-white lens. And sometimes that means the people in your circle, right? And if you don't have black people in your circle, then I don't know what to say to you because that's terrible. (laughs) So do that first, right? Like organically, right? You should by now have more than one black friend. <laughs> um, I'll plug the um, the bonus content of Mother Mother, which I did with my uh, original co-host for the show. It's bonus content wherever you're listening to the podcast about diversifying your mom friends. So amazing. Uh, if you don't have any black people in your circle, I don't know if we give the best advice, but we try to talk about diversifying your mom friends. Yes, do that. That's That's step one. And then from there, find spaces where you can engage. Like I'm, I'm in a few Facebook groups. Um, and I'm just, I'm just going to assume that other elder millennials are hearing me and I'm not talking to people who are on TikTok only and have no idea what I'm talking about, but I don't think they're listening to this anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Um, like find those spaces. Like I'm in spaces on Facebook where there are black, mostly moms. I'm going to say moms. Um, even though I, I tend to avoid being super gendered about parenting roles, but, um, there are black moms and white moms who are discussing these kinds of things. Um, those spaces are out there. Sometimes you find them by accident. Sometimes you um, need to seek them out, right? But find those spaces where you can engage. Avoid doing that in spaces that are predominantly white, like some of the some of the Facebook groups for writers. The aforementioned those- Facebook groups for writers who are also parents. <laughs> that one, yes. Um, Avoid doing it in spaces like that. Do it where you can actually engage. And by engage, I mean, listen, keyword, um, to what Black parents are saying about these things, right? And that's that's the best way to navigate that. Outside of Facebook, any words of wisdom um, or encouragement for white parents who are just afraid to talk about race and they like don't want to say the wrong thing. And they're just like afraid that, you know, either they whisper the word Black or they're just afraid to go there at all. Yeah, get over it. All right. You have to. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. Put that on a bumper sticker. So again, black parents, we don't have the luxury of avoiding race and racism. We're going to experience that from day one. Literally, if you look at the birth, you know, the birth rates, the uh, infant mortality rates, the maternal mortality rates from day one, we are affected and our lives are shaped by race and racism. So should should I necessarily feel um, bad, if you will, for you that having conversations about race are difficult? No, I should not. I can engage just like any other Black person in your circle might choose to engage. Um, It's not going to be my job. It's not going to be the next Black person's job to do that. So it honestly is about getting over it, like get over that hump Um, say black, don't say people of color. If you're talking about black people, don't say BIPOC. If you're talking about black people, don't feel like you have to type out African-American when somebody has told you they identify as black, um, like get, get over these humps and be open. That means sometimes things are going to feel really hard. They're going to feel like, ouch, you know, my character is being questioned. No, it's not. It's not personal. Get over it. And it's uncomfortable sometimes as a white person to bring up race if you feel like you're doing it in the wrong way, but like you're going to learn. And it's, I I guarantee you that as a white person, it's more comfortable for you than like what black people have to deal with in this country and in this world. Exactly. Period. Yeah. 
deal with it. I love it. Deal with it. Kelly, anything else you want to tell us about your new vertical at parents.com or um, what what media we should be following? Anything else? Yeah, I would encourage everybody to just keep an eye out. Um, Again, we're launching in mid-January. And if you follow parents.com already, then you'll certainly, you know, you'll see us pop up. So just just keep looking out. And where can people follow you, Kelly? Oh, I am on Twitter at Kelly G. Writer. And I am on Instagram with the very long handle at Kelly Glass, the journalist. Recently verified. Yes, exactly. That was that was quite the trip trying to, <laughs> trying to get verified on IG without 5 million followers, but I did it. So you'll know you found the right Kelly when you see that blue check mark. That's it. Kelly, thank you so, so, so much for coming on Mother Mother. It's been so nice to see your face and, and chat with you. And I uh, want to have you back after this launches because I have some ideas for us. So... Just uh, be prepared for me to start bugging you incessantly once you launch. Oh, bug away. That sounds great. And thank you for having me, Emily. This was fun. Thank you. I've dropped links to Kelly's social in the show notes. And if you want to continue the conversation, you can join us in the Mother Mother Podcast Facebook group where the password is tired because we are. And I am especially tired because I just started a new job as senior commerce writer at epicurious.com and I've been scrambling to get this shed finished in time so I have had many late nights. Anyway, you can always find more information about the show, my guests and the people and products mentioned on every episode at mothermotherpodcast.com where yes, you can also leave me a voicemail. Thank you so much for listening to Mother Mother. I'll be back next Tuesday with another episode and a new guest. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Our theme song, Mother Mother by Tracy Bonham, is performed by the amazing Jocelyn McKenzie with Harry Bowles. Bye. Mother, mother, can you hear me? Sure, I'm so 